Hello and welcome to The Cultural Scavenger. I'm Andy Parker and thanks for joining me as I share the backstories, the insights, and some offbeat tales that you might not expect. not be a household name, but his song sure is. My dear old friend Randy Brooks caught lightning in a bottle back in 1977 when he wrote, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. You'll hear how this classic came to be, along with Randy's backstory and our shared history together. And now join me for my conversation with the most clever guy I've ever known, Randy Brooks. I am uh, extremely proud and honored to have my first guest on The Cultural Scavenger, Randy Brooks, who taught me everything I know about theater. <laughs> and, and, and because this is, you know, pe- people that are listening to this podcast, uh, they can't see us because we're, we're on Skype and we can see each other visually. And, you know, I told Randy that, that uh, a prerequisite of this is that we, since it's after five, we have our beverages of choice. So <laughs> what do you got there, Randy? Here's to, here's to you. I've got a single sure. malt scotch. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm working on a hot BM. <laughs> a Bloody Mary, that is. It happens at our age. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and... and which reminds me of the bicentennial man when you used to come out in the it, to the railhead and perform, and you had this big stovepipe hat with BM on the top of it. Now, how's that for a segue? Part of this podcast is uh, telling the backstories that that people don't know. I mean, obviously, people know that you wrote Grandma, but they don't know about the bicentennial man, and um, or the fact that we. We met, and maybe that's probably a good thing that they don't, but not. <laughs> Might be. I can already tell that the, the cultural part of the cultural scavenger is being abandoned tonight entirely. <laughs> you know, we met, you know, before we get to the railhead and Bicentennial Man, we have known each other. You know, when I say my old my old friend, I, it's literally not just figuratively. There's no hyperbole there. We've known each other well, 46 years, which is, that, wow. that's, yeah, wow. we met in, when you were doing, when I was a singing waiter at the Country Dinner Playhouse in Austin, and you were in a production of Plaza Suite. With and, the great song and dance man, Dan Daly. Dan Daly, that's right. And and the other notable that, that uh, went on to some some semblance of notoriety was Bruce McGill who played the bellhop. And I think he only had, he came in like three times and he, you know, I just remember that his famous line was champagne. And then he would, <laughs> he would disappear and we'd find him out behind the theater <laughs> smoking weed. <laughs> that's a, that's a, a point of pride for me that I was in a production where I had a bigger role than Bruce McGill, <laughs> who, who within a couple of years was D-Day in Animal House, you know, yeah. riding the motorcycle yeah. upstairs and wound up playing I forget who he played in in Lincoln with Daniel Day Lewis, but he's oh, yeah. had a fabulous career. He has, but he didn't write Grandma. And he and still regrets it to this day. I'm sure. 
That's right. So how did you get there? Because, you know, we have this, uh, our, we have a common background in the Country Dinner Playhouse. You were a, a trailblazer before I got there as a singing waiter. Were you a haymaker or a barnstormer? I can't remember. I was a haymaker. Actually, when, when the Country Dinner in Dallas first opened, it was, we were the Swingin' Gate, G-A-I-T. And uh, when, that's, they, that's, when they decided to get rid of our, our director because he was taking too much of the tip money for himself, I think, um, <laughs> they, they got rid of that name, too. And our director, Bill McHale, took over and made us the Haymakers. There uh, were 14 of us originally, and uh, really? it included a flamenco dancer who no. didn't sing with the group, but he would walk out with a board and dance on the board, a little specialty act, you know. In a couple of weeks, the flamenco dancer and a couple of the other people were gone. <laughs> Rightfully <Okay>. so. <laughs> Jeez, I never knew that. That's <laughs> from fourteen and a flamingo dancer. I, I, you know, so so. How did you get? Was that kind of your first stop? I mean, were you? I know you went to Vanderbilt, right? And you were you you grew up in in Nashville. I grew up in Louisville, actually. Oh, that's right, that's right. Excuse me. And and uh, how'd you end up in Dallas? A fraternity brother from Vanderbilt brought me down here for spring vacation. The um, other than Tennessee, the, the next biggest group of people at Vanderbilt is is Texans and especially Dallas. And I was in a fraternity with all these guys from Dallas. I felt like I knew Dallas before. Before I ever moved here, you know, they talked about the the streets and the schools and the restaurants and stuff. And so this this buddy invited me down for spring break. I came down here with him and he knew that I played and sang. I didn't write that much at the time, but I but I played and sang. And so his mother arranged to borrow a guitar from a music store downtown where they were friends with the owner so that I could sing to her while she fixed dinner. So I did this and his, his uh, girl, he was dating here in town came over and she was listening and she said, Hey, I'm, there's this new dinner theater. that's going to open this summer. And uh, I think they've still got a couple of slots open. Would you like to go out and audition for the director? And I, so I did, I went out and sang him every song I knew. He just sat there, let me go the whole afternoon. <laughs> and uh, they never called me back. So I'm at Vanderbilt, you know, I'm, I'm about to give up. And, and I, I called the, uh, my friend's girlfriend who wound up becoming my girlfriend. And I, I said, uh, you know, I guess I didn't get the gig, you know? Oh yeah, you're in. <laughs> he just never bothered to tell me. <laughs> she said, yeah. So the only thing, now we got the group complete. The only thing we need now is a guy who can play both stand up and electric bass. And I said, well, I've, I got a brother who plays real well, you know, well, bring him along. So they never even heard Ronnie the day after he graduated from high school. He was his senior class president. He he delivered the address and then packed the car and drove to Dallas with me. And that's how we got to Dallas. I, this was my after my junior year. So I just did a summer at the dinner theater. I had so much fun. I made so such good friends. I mean, to, to know that you could actually make some money singing and and also we got to be you know extras in some of the shows and stuff like that, and and the women. I mean Dallas women, yeah. my goodness. So I couldn't wait to get back here. And <laughs> as soon as I as soon as I graduated, you know, I was immediately back here with no promise of a job, no guarantee of a job, other than I did um, 
I had been asked to fill in for a guy who dropped out of a band going over to Vietnam for the summer with USO. So I did that. And then uh, I just hung out until they had a spot at the dinner theater again. And I went back in there and never left Dallas. It, you know, that, that your story is somewhat similar to mine in that it it's, that's how I ended up at the dinner theater in Austin. It was this serendipitous twist of fate, as it were. I was, my dad was a manager at a music store in Austin and I would work there. You know, I was working there while I was going to, to university of Texas it's hard to believe Austin where it is now versus where it was in 1973. You know, it's a completely different place. And, and the country dinner playhouse was like it. I mean, there was no music scene. There was like, if you wanted to impress a date, you'd take them to country dinner playhouse. And I'll never forget the first time that I took a date there. One of the few that I had back then before I was, (laughs) before I became, got on stage but I just remember the stage would come down in a, on a lift, and it was literally like magic. They started playing. The hydraulic stage came down, and I'm thinking, holy shit, I I want to do that. I mean, that is just, well, you think, well, this is way out of my league. One day, the the stage manager came into the music store, and he said, he said we need some instruments because we've got a musical coming in, Hello Dolly, and we would like to do some a trade out with you for for some seats. And I said, Well, sure, I think we can probably do that. And he and I and I, that's when I told him. I said, I've been out there. The, the place is just magic. And and he said, No, they need a replacement haymaker. He got me the introduction, and I went out there. I like you. I played for the guy, and I'm thinking, and the guy hired me right right there on the spot. Well, you, you hit on it earlier that it was probably the most fantastic gig that any of us will ever do. The money was just re- insanely ridiculous for the amount of work that we put in. And, and you know, and like I said, only know to save some of it. <laughs> I know. I know. It was, it was, it was, yeah, me too. It was just like a party every single night. And I was actually, I was still in school. Everybody else in the in the Haymakers, they'd already graduated. But like I did a few years later, it was like, hmm, this is too good a gig to pass up because you're making more money than most people working at a regular nine to five job. And, and you're having a blast. It was, you're getting it was awesome. for it. <laughs> I know it. I know it. As you remember, they'd say, well, we've got this little part that we need to fill and it's too small for for the touring companies to bring in who wants to do it and i'd go well, i will come back to the tables and people were like oh my god this guy was just in the show it was it was just it was astounding it was the and they didn't have to pay you equity wages <laughs> i know it i exactly you know it was they did pay you you know like 25 bucks a week or whatever i mean it was something, yeah, something. stupid but it was like this is like found money and it gave you extra tips and whatnot so that whole experience is going to be covered in another episode because there's just so many, God, there's so so many stories to tell there. I mean, it was just an, an amazing place. Well, so, there's so many stories that you can't tell. That, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. So, so when you when did you decide to go from from the playhouse to then be? I guess at that point, I mean, I'm assuming that when you were doing uh, Plaza Suite, you were an equity actor at that point, correct? Yes. Unbelievably. (laughs) And, and, you know, I was hanging on for whatever jobs I could get, which were few and far between, because there were a lot of people who wanted those little jobs and 
I wasn't that good. But I was doing now. Now <laughs> I I know better, <laughs> Mimsy. That was I I'll remember that till <laughs> Mimsy. <laughs> but I got cast in a role um, in the melodrama "The Drunkard" that uh, Barry Manilow had written all the music for before I had any idea who Barry Manilow was, <laughs> and I was the I was a banjo playing bartender, and I had I had a banjo that uh, I tuned like a guitar and just strummed it, you know, but it was perfect for this show. I remember the song was have another drink. If the drink that you drunk isn't doing enough for you. <laughs> and in the audience one night were these two friends, Rick and Cheryl, who had had this fabulous folk group in Dallas called young country. And uh, the, that group had broken up and they'd gone out to Reno for a year or so and tried to get something going out there. And they came back to town and they came up to me after the show and they said, hey, we're going to try to put Young Country back together. But a couple of the guys are no longer available. Would you like to be in the band? And I was, yeah, I mean, because because I really respected these guys and I loved what they did. I honestly didn't think I could cut it. Um, I didn't know what I would do standing on stage for four hours a night and I could sing, could sing harmony with them and I could play rhythm guitar, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I brought that much to the table. Um, but we put the band back together and it, it just took off, you know, and we had, we had some really good gigs in Dallas and Austin and Houston and, and played a bunch out in uh, Reno and Lake Tahoe and ski areas. And that's uh, how I got into the, the band scene and the music scene. And it also enabled me, I was already writing an occasional novelty song, but it gave me a platform. And once every, about once in every set during the night, we, I would be the comic relief and we'd mm -hmm. feature me doing one of my, one of my novelty songs. That's where Bicentennial Man came from. 1976. Yeah, that was, that was the perfect deal. It was a, obviously theme related, um, Actually, one of my other favorites was "Will you be ready at the plate when Jesus throws the ball?" That was that was my most popular song, and it more much more popular than Grandma, as a matter of fact. Until until that became a hit record, you know. Mm -hmm. I played on the radio. "Will you be ready?" Uh, an hour ago on an interview I was doing, they picked that out as one they wanted to play. You know? It was it was great, and I tell you those those days, the railhead in Dallas. Uh, you know, at that point in time, in the in the early to mid seventies to late seventies, Greenville Avenue it had great venues for bands like Young Country and the Brooks Sisters, and it was at one point uh, after I graduated, I thought, well, I've got to go to law school, and I think I'll take a year or two off before I do that. And I was I was a you know it's kind of like you I I got the opportunity to come to Dallas to replace one of the guys that left, and. It was just, uh, that was kind of like, as soon as we finished at the Playhouse, we would head to the Railhead. And Young Country was, uh, it was just, it was a hit for everybody. I mean, it, it was just, you know, we had so much fun. And I remember, and I'm, I'm going to, I've got to read this because it's, it's <laughs> you, you will remember this well. Um, there were a lot of hijinks, as I'm sure you... <laughs> You're aware. <laughs> That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. But there was there was the famous and streaking was a big thing back then too, as you as you know. 
Uh, that's what I think led to my demise at the playhouse. I, I streaked one night w- without telling the manager. <laughs> she was she wasn't mad that I streaked. She was she was pissed that I didn't tell her beforehand. So yeah. So Rick Thomas, one of the haymakers, we, we decided that what we were going to do was perform the classic double inverted moon while you guys were performing, and to set the stage, so to speak. The railhead was the the bar and and the and where you guys were playing it was tiered so everything you know you walked in one side was the restaurant on the other side was the bar and the um, and the stage and it it was tiered down so you guys were we were looking down at you you were looking up at us the audience was looking at you so uh, my wife Barbara was actually one of the she was an accomplice there I don't know if you knew this but she. She opened the door as as Rick and I performed the double inverted moon as you guys were doing a song. And I thought I'm you were gonna, saying Barbara was a participant. No, no, I don't. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read the description for those that are listening to, and going, "What the hell is a double inverted moon?" Well, a double inverted moon was invented in Dodge City, Kansas, in the 1970s. And it occurs when two men drop their pants and underwear and interlock elbows back to back, ass to ass. Then one man pulls his torso forward, hunching over, which turns, which in, in turn elevates the second man upon his back, who lifts his, <laughs> who, who lifts his legs into the air, exposing, <laughs> exposing an almost asymmetrical vision <laughs> I can't, I can't get wow this. what a clinical description <laughs> I know it is. I, I found this online which is <laughs> exposing an almost symmetrical vision of their of their junk taints and anuses to unsuspecting onlookers <laughs> and that was but you guys didn't miss a beat. Everybody looked up, saw this. It <laughs> just kept right on going. I mean, you guys were pros. <laughs> I, I just remember looking at your face and just a smile. and all, You all just continued on. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they, you know, back, uh, you're right. That was a, a, a phase back then or a fad. There, I remember a, a waitress in uh, Houston at the railhead on the top tier too, coming out and mooning us. And then in Houston one night we had three people. We, we had this album. We always said we'd give away a free copy to the first man and the first woman who walked on stage naked. And one <laughs> night in Houston, two women and a man all walked up on stage. So we coughed up a third album for them. <laughs> <laughs> woman had nothing on but a bow in her hair. <laughs> that's Oh, that's, that's just, that's that's too good. Oh man, just thinking about it, they were just some amazing days. And unfortunately, those you know, those venues, I guess, are pretty much gone, right? I mean, Railhead is no longer the Country Dinner Playhouse is in Austin, at least. I think it, it's now like a hospital, you know, where it was. It used to be out in the middle of nowhere, and now it's like in the middle of Austin. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, the and the Playhouse in Dallas turned into a barbecue place, and then it. I think it's like a parking lot. Yeah, they, they demolished it and put up a Whataburger or something there, or Taco Bell. Well, Great. tell me. So, as the comic relief, 
how did how did grandma come to be? Well, the one year around Christmas time, they the railhead would pay me a little extra money to to create um, background music tapes. It was actually reel to reel that was on auto reverse and kept playing um, when the band wasn't on. So uh, for our breaks that play and what and they said, uh, would you make us one for Christmas of all Christmas music that we can play between November and December? And so I started collecting all the Christmas albums I could get my hands on. I owned some. I went to the library and checked some out. I borrowed some from friends. And you could not come up with an hour and a half of Christmas music without repeating White Christmas 12 times by 12 different artists, you know, or you name the song, any of them was like that. You know, there just weren't that many Christmas songs that were that that listenable. And so that that implanted in my brain, maybe it'd be fun to write a Christmas song and have one that was young country's own Christmas song that we only pulled out during the holidays, like we were important enough to have our own Christmas song. And one of the albums that I borrowed from a friend was Merle Haggard's Christmas album. And I was a big fan of Merle Haggard. So I was doubly disappointed when I got to the B side of the album and heard his song, Grandma's Christmas Card, which was not a song really, but a recitation over it, like a, a sad fiddle accompaniment. Yeah. And he's talking about Grandma, and she was she was a very talented artist, and she would draw wonderful cards, and the family all look forward every year to the arrival of the card in the mail, and then that would be the centerpiece of their decorations on the mantle. And because of the sort of the sadness of the accompaniment, you said, oh, my God, this is going to be one of those traditional country songs where in the third verse, the card doesn't show up. <laughs> and that's how we find out, you know. And so that pissed me off right away. And I, I said, Merle, I, I really, I admire you, Merle. And you've let me down. If you were the writer that I think you are, you would just tell us right up front that grandma's dead. And then, <laughs> then come up with three verses and a course. And that would be an interesting exercise in writing. And I decided to take that task on myself. And I, I used some of Merle's songs as a template. You can hear a little turnaround in grandma that, that is right out of, if we make it through December. Oh, sure. And, yeah. And some other, some other songs, you know, that I use the, the form of to, to form grandma. And I, climbed in bed at night with my guitar and I said, okay, let's see how, how my grandma died Christmas time. And it just fell into place. You know, how long did it take? I wrote the chorus and the first verse that night before I fell asleep. And the next morning in the shower, I knocked off the, the last two verses. I had it all down there, you know, and asked the, the band, um, if it'd be okay with them, here's a new song. I always wanted to run them by them to be sure they thought it was worthy. And they weren't gushing with enthusiasm, but they said, sure, we'll do that. So we <laughs> sang that at, at Christmas time, uh, 1977, the first year. And it didn't, it didn't exactly catch on gangbusters. I mean, people still would rather hear, will you be ready at the plate when Jesus throws the ball? But they got a decent response. And I remember the following summer over in Europe on a USO tour, we had kids in the audience and we, couldn't oh God, what can we do? You know, that these kids are not getting into anything. So, well, let's sing a song 
about Christmas in the middle of July and see what happens. And and they responded well to it, (laughs) even though it was never meant to be heard by children because of the line, you can say there's no such thing as Santa, you know, I I didn't want kids to hear that. I just wanted to sing it in a bar and get some cheap laughs. (laughs) And you did. (laughs) (laughs) It was two years of singing in the bar, getting some laughs. And then I guess Elmo and Patsy found it and recorded it in what, 1979. I met them in 78. The band at the time was, uh, we, we were playing out at the Hyatt in Lake Tahoe. We were playing like Thanksgiving week through December 15th. And then everybody raved about the band following us in Elmo and Patsy were their favorite band. You know, it was kind of a country. Sonny and Cher did a lot of comedy songs. Um, and we were supposed to be packing up. We, we got all our stuff in the van. We were leaving the hotel to come back to Dallas. And the brakes on the van had frozen up. It was really cold. And so we, we couldn't get the van fixed till the next day. So we moved back into the hotel, decided, well, we're here. We might as well go down to the lounge and hear this Elmo and Patsy that we've heard of. And we were sitting there listening to their act. And somebody, one of the employees told them, hey, the young country's out in the audience, you know, the other band. And they um, immediately said, hey, why don't you guys come up on stage and, you know, we'll we'll jam together on some songs that, you know, we might know in common bluegrass songs. Now my band would never have done that. We never got anybody else up on stage. We didn't want to, you know, have an uncontrolled situation, but sure. these guys thinking, Hey, we can get out of some work here. By <laughs> yeah. It was a lounge act after all. <laughs> after all. So we, the plan was, you know, we'd pl- probably play Rocky top, roll in my sweet baby's arms, foggy mountain breakdown or something. And, but, uh, Again, one of the casino employees on his night off in there with a date, he sent up a request on a napkin for grandma got run over by a reindeer because he'd heard my band playing that. And I was about to put it aside and say, we can't do that. And and Elmo was like, no, go ahead, sing it, you know. And we did. And immediately at the end of the set, they cornered me off stage and said, hey, come back in the dressing room. We got a cassette recorder if you'll record that song, we'd like to learn it because it's the kind of novelty song that we sing. So that was exciting enough for me to think that somebody wanted to sing a song of mine, you know, that wasn't in a band I was in <laughs> and, and mentioned my name when I wasn't out of town. Yeah. When I wasn't that was a thrill, but it was a complete surprise about three months later when I got a cassette in the mail and they had gone into a studio in Nashville and recorded it. And then from there, well, and even then, the plan was to press press up a single and sell it from the stage at their shows. They already had some other albums, you know, so it would just be part of their merchandise. But they weren't anybody anymore than I was, so who thought anything would happen with it? But somebody took a copy of the record into uh, KSFO in San Francisco, and the morning DJ, Gene Nelson, put it on the air. And... The phone rang off the hook with people saying, don't ever play that record again. (laughs) (laughs) But that's how it got started. (laughs) And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, I uh, clearly the wit that you have that shines through in all these songs that you that you have written. I think I don't know how many people know and maybe the the folks on this Listening to this, that I probably don't know, but Foster Brooks, the famous comedian, is was your uncle. 
This is true. And depending on the age of your listeners, they may not even <laughs> remember who that is. I know. <laughs> We might have a, a few, hopefully, but uh, yeah. So from there, you ended up in American Airlines, as and I, I remember because I was traveling a lot throughout the '80s, and I was an American Airlines, what an Advantage Gold member or whatever. And every time I would call to check on something, there would be your voice. You were the voice of American Airlines too. Thank you for calling American Airlines Advantage <laughs> Customer Service. <laughs> Please listen to this flute, flute solo for eight minutes. <laughs> but we didn't care because, damn, that's Randy Brooks. I know that guy. <laughs> but Grandma turned into, I mean, it, it was, is, it's just been, I guess the the best way to describe it, it's an, an annuity that you couldn't have dreamt of, I, I suspect. No way. No way. I mean, and when people say, you know, hey, my nephew has written this Christmas song. How can he do something with it? Or, you know, I say, there's just no way. Good I mean, if, I, yeah. if there were a way to duplicate the luck that I had, I would have duplicated it many times over. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, luck. Well, it was, it's good stuff. Good stuff. Well, I, I, uh, every year you send out to, uh, to your friends, uh, the, the Christmas, the letter from the Brooks household. And I was unfriend me as a result. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) With this episode, you might have people also clamoring for how do I get on Randy's email list? Because, you know, I'm going to share with you right now. One of the nuggets that I found from this most recent, uh, email and and Christmas note that Marty, your wife, she, uh, it says, solidarity with Marty. Randy has been writing and singing only vegan songs this year, even though grandma got run over by a turnip doesn't have the same impact, so to speak. Randy's other titles in, in Randy's updated repertoire include a boy named tofu. I believe in muesli amazing grains, long, tall salad. And my favorite be true to your stool. <laughs> Marty edits the newsletter and she said, really? Be true to your stool? <laughs> I, I, no, that was just, oh God, that, that was, that was rich. Well, I think we, we, we have, uh, we have enough material now for at least one episode. I hope that we can, because there's there's a lot of other stories here, and and I want to bring you back on because it's just so much fun to do this. So I have friends wanting to know when this is available who want to listen to it. <laughs> Did you say friend or friend? <laughs> yes, yes, friend, like my friend. <laughs> He's, he's hearing impaired, but, he, but that'll only make it better, right? <laughs> oh. As always, dear friend, thank you so much. Uh, this was as fun as I thought it would be. It's it's weird to be, you know, I've, as you probably know, I've done interviews that I wish I wasn't doing. I've always they been the. Haven't been fun. <laughs> they have not been fun. Uh, I've been the interviewee, but never the interviewer. And this is this was as fun as I thought it would be. So, and it's good seeing you, by the way. <laughs> good, good seeing you. Well, that's the story. 
Special thanks to Mary Ann Kennedy, Pat Bunch, and Pam Rose for allowing me to use their music from Safe in the Arms of Love, and of course, Randy Brooks for Grandma. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share my podcast with your friends. And if you really liked what you heard, please consider becoming a contributor to the podcast. I'm Andy Parker, and I'll be here next week with another episode of The Cultural Scavenger. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas!